You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. When was the last time you were afraid? Really afraid? Mephisto Waltz. The devil dancing with his paramours. Do a life mask of miles. I'm not my husband's keeper. The Mephisto Waltz, a story of inner fear and ritual terror, and the ultimate transplant, the human soul. Is their incredible power over others? How long does it take them to drive a woman out of her mind? The terrifying answers come each time you hear the Mephisto Waltz, the sound of terror. You killed Bill. You killed Happy. Now you want to kill me. Is it possible? It is possible. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Andrew Nettie. Master, I'm ready to bargain. Also back in the booth is Ms. Rain Alexander. 
I'm ready to tickle the ivories. Shocktober 2021 continues with a look at Paul Wenkos' The Mephisto Waltz, based on the novel by Fred Mustard Stewart. The film stars Alan Alda as Miles Clarkson, a pianist-turned-author, along with Jacqueline Bissett as Miles' wife Paula, who isn't a big fan of Miles' new friend, the crotchety professional pianist Duncan Eli, played by Kurt Jurgens, who harbors a dark secret. We'll be split that secret and a lot more as we go along. So if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and go watch the film. We will still be here. So Andrew, this was a request from you that you made a long time ago. So when was the first time you saw the Mephisto Waltz and what did you think? It would have been on late night commercial TV in the late 1980s. It stayed with me ever since. Probably for no other reason than that scene towards the end, getting right to it, when Jacqueline Bissett's character conjures the devil in the hospital and makes a pact with Satan. Obviously, you know, like a lot of young teen boys slash men, I, I had had a big crush on Bissett since I saw her in the deep in 1977. I've been thinking about this, and I was also shocked because it was the first time I think I'd seen us seen anything in television or film when someone had actually conjured up the devil, although you don't actually see Satan. But I also remember being wowed by the sort of subversiveness of Jacqueline Bissett, Paula, Jacqueline Bissett's character, who sort of had the audacity and courage to basically flip the whole film and make a bargain with Satan and be prepared to swap forms with someone else in order to keep her husband, who's actually not really her husband anymore. The film is no Rosemary's Baby, which, you know, the source novel by Fred Mustard Stewart, I was obviously inspired by it's got a real made-for-TV vibe, but I really enjoy its sort of general outre atmosphere and tone, the dream sequences, the party scenes, the whole package, the look, the cast, the score. I also think it's had a real influence on me because there was so much occult-themed material in the late 1960s and 1970s, motion picture, made-for-TV films. I must have watched so much of this in my late teens, you know, just as I was starting to come of age as, as a sort of consumer of, of, of cinema and, and television. And I, I think it was quite formative on me in ways I only realised until much later. It's part of that time, which I, I remember as a weird time, but also fondly when the occult mysticism, ghosts, the devil, it seemed much more a part of mainstream discourse than it is today. So it's, fasc it's fascinating for, for all these reasons. You know, my parents were as square as fuck. Eric von Daniken's Chariot of the Gods was on their bookshelf, as was Rosemary's Baby. So, you know, it's interesting as a film and it's interesting as a time for me when films like this and the themes of these kind of films were really part of mainstream discourse. And Rain, how about yourself? I saw it a lot on TV in the 80s. I, too, had a huge 70s occult obsession as, as a kid, but I was being raised a Mormon child. And so I definitely felt like I was getting away with things, you know, just... Oh, I'm just watching movies on a Saturday afternoon, mom. <laughs> Leave me alone. And, uh, you know, just like really opening up these, uh, these occult boxes every place that I possibly could, just knowing that uh, they were sanitized enough to be on television. And that's one of the things that really struck me going through when watching it this time. I'm like, I want to watch those TV edits and kind of see what they left in because there's, there's definitely some super scandalous stuff here. And then of course, you know, uh, my family was a huge mash watching family. And so Alan Alda, he, he was such a kind and, and gentle presence in our house in so many ways. So 
whenever I'd see the ad for this, I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch this spooky movie with Alan Aldi in it. This was actually a first time watch for me. So I really wasn't familiar with the film until you asked about it, Andrew, if we could talk about it on the show. And so I watched it for the first time a few months ago and then have come back to it several times since to just keep studying it and seeing what I see kind of thing. It so feels like a TV movie. It's just amazing. And I, I don't know what it is about it that makes it feel like a TV movie so much. I don't know if it's the font of the credits, if it's the way that the credits are presented. I mean, the the credit sequence itself is fantastic. The score, my God, the Jerry Goldsmith score for this is so good. And I love the way that he plays with the Franz Liszt Mephisto Waltz, as well as his own themes that he has going on in here. The score is really just so powerful, and it just comes through so well in those opening credits. Maybe it's just that I am so familiar with Alan Alda and even a lot of uh, Bradford Dillman stuff through television that maybe that's why it feels like a TV movie. I don't feel the fade outs as much, you know, like sometimes you're watching things and you're like, okay, that's where the commercial break would be. But it does have a very clear structure to it as far as this happens and this happens and this happens, which is interesting because this was a Quinn Martin production. Also, you know, major TV player. And it sounds like once Windcoast was done, Quinn Martin was the one. I don't think he personally edited it, but I think he very much gave the direction on how to edit it. And every story that I read about the film was, oh, yeah, there was so much more that was shot that wasn't in the final product. Some people have said, oh, it was probably three hours or whatever. I imagine there's probably at least 20 more minutes of this out there someplace and just little bits and pieces that kind of tie some more things together. I don't think we're missing major chunks of this movie, but there are things that would probably help add up a little bit more would probably help us realize, too, who their daughter is a little bit better and help enforce the loss of the daughter. Because once she's gone and then they bring her up later on, I'm like, oh, yeah, she was in this movie, wasn't she? (laughs) She just kind of out of sight, out of mind for a long time. That silly, fantastic interview with Wendekos, which I, I think I eventually managed to send to people successfully, does mention that, doesn't it, that he had some differences with Quinn Martin about the, the length of it. And certainly that scene, jumping right into it, certainly that scene post when the daughter is murdered feels very glazed over in some respects. And Wendekos very much says, well, look, you know, I had these disagreements with Quinn Martin and that was one of the, one of the areas in which he made significant cuts. Having said that, it broadly flows quite well. And I, I think one, when I watched it most recently, and like you, Ray, I've, I've, I've watched it many times, the less is more aspect of it worked. The fact that they show less, do less, it moves quickly, it works to the film's betterment, I think, rather than shoehorning a lots, lots more stuff in. I definitely think when the daughter gets killed, that's an area where they could have put a bit more into it. But then again, I think that also imparts a sense that uh, Paula, it just basically, dro- that's what drives Paula over the edge when the daughter gets killed. She's literally, when I look at it now, I think, no, she's just gone insane. So, so insane that she's prepared to basically conjure up Satan and do a deal with him. I've always thought of it as a TV movie because of the Quinn Martin aspect of it. And, you know, I mean, Wenkos is a TV director and a cinematographer was a TV cinematographer. So, like, I feel like all that, it makes sense that it would have this TV-ness to it. I mean, and, and like, Wenkos, 
I didn't really realize this, but he he directed a couple of things that also had pretty big impact on me. He directed uh, the Harriet Tubman miniseries, A Woman Called Moses, which I watched a bunch. And he also directed a remake of The Bad Seed that had David Ogden Stiers in it. But I've been looking to, I, I really want to see that one again, because I, you know, I, of course, that's a movie that I saw before I saw the original Bad Seed, totally coming at the world in an upended way like I normally do. It's just striking to me how much of an impact this director had on me. And it never really connected, but definitely like this, this access that TV gave. I think for all of the faults that this movie might have, which could be attributed to its TVosity, it still has that impact. You know, it still has, 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 a, has, a, has a foothold, certainly in my mind. A big shout out to the burglar. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say, was that this is the second Wendkos film we've covered on here. Yeah, I mean, and the 1957 noir based on a script by David Goodis. It was his first feature film, and it's a cracker of a noir. He also did those, I don't know if anyone else got a chance to watch them, those uh, those two uh, weird and very wonderful anthology sort of TV horror films, Fear No Evil and Ritual of Evil. Which I thought were fantastic. That stuff was everywhere, Ray, wasn't it? It was everywhere. Yeah, it really was. In the nineteen seventies, and we we all watched it late at night when our parents were asleep or didn't know what we were doing or whatever. Yeah, for me, they were on Saturday afternoons mostly, which was wild. You know, this UHF station just doing it like right in the middle of the day, like nobody's business. I mean, that mainstream television had shows like In Search of and Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, and yeah, the one for me was. Watching that documentary, which I'm doing quotation fingers, documentary on Nostradamus. I mean, that movie freaked me the hell out, The Man Who Saw mm-hmm. Tomorrow. So, yeah, I, I love how into the supernatural we were in the 1970s. It was just like we had this major gulf of spirituality and all of this hokum just went right into them. It was self-help. It was Satanism. It was New Age stuff. It just all poured into the same same hole. I remember the Loch Ness monster and UFOs used to get reported on in the Sunday papers. There's been another there's been another Loch Ness monster sighting. I mean, as you say, that stuff was so much a part of mainstream discourse. I mean, and so many of these films, that so many of these 1970s, late 60s, 1970s occult films, will inevitably have a scene in which a bunch of middle class hipsters are sitting around at a dinner party talking about whether Satan is real. There's that exact scene in, in Wencos's. 1969 film Fear No Evil, where there's a whole group of people sitting around in the sunken lounge room, basically talking about, oh, is is Satanism actually a thing? Is the occult, you know, a thing? And there would be one inevitable person who's the sort of more some usually a bit European, bit cosmopolitan, who would basically be saying, you know, well, what what is in the dark is something we can never know, you know. That that, that was culture too. Like I say, my parents. My parents had chariot, chariot of the Gods. That was everywhere. The Devil's Triangle, another regular Sunday paper staple reporting thing, you know? Yeah, I thought way more things would disappear into the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, I was petrified of the Bermuda Triangle when I was a kid. <laughs> but we almost, it was almost like sport. It was like, oh, did you hear something disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle last week? Yeah, I read about that, you know? The first dinner party takes place pretty quickly in this film because it does move very fast. I mean, we start off with that opening credits that I was talking about, and then we've got the waking up scene of Bissette and and Alda in bed together, but that great 
audio work that they're doing where it's the cat and the bird that you're hearing and just this cat howling like crazy. And I really like that later on in the film, we're going to get people wearing costumes and you basically have Duncan Eli, who's going to be our main antagonist wearing this lion outfit and Jacqueline Bissett wearing a, a bird outfit. And it's just like, Oh, okay. I see what you're doing here. I mean, it's very clever the way that they put this together, the whole idea too of masks and hiding things. And then of course it plays into this life mask thing, which takes place, you know, which really helps when it comes to this transformation transformation stuff. So just so people at home know what what is happening in this film is we've got this older Satanist, Duncan Eli, the Kurt Jurgens character, and he kind of falls head over heels for Miles Clarkson, the Alan Alda character, because of Alan Alda's hands, his incredible octave reaching hands that he has and that Alda is a writer by way of being a failure at Juilliard and not having a good first concert. And here's this pianist, this older pianist who just is like, Oh wow, this guy's got amazing range and basically takes him for a test drive by lavishing all this attention on him and having this big dinner party and seeing what miles can do at the piano, which really I think helps cement this idea of, oh, great, here's a guy whose body I can take over. And that's really the crux of this film is this whole idea of it's like a body swap thing, but it's much more sinister. We're not talking Freaky Friday with this one. I, lo- I mean, I love a body swap movie, too. Oh, me I'm too. sure that's another thing that really like enraptured me as a kid where I'm just like, any way out of this situation would be great. A body swap. It- take me away. I had completely forgotten about Freaky Friday, but yes, you're right. That 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 absolutely right to name check that. But there was this whole subgenre of occult body transference films too, which of course this plays into. What I didn't real, what I what I found out, which was, I mean, Mustard Stewart, who wrote the book, actually trained at Juilliard as a concert pianist. So he was also a failed concert pianist, and the book was based on his time at Juilliard School, which just makes it interesting to think how what Juilliard must have been like. I agree with you about the masks and the party. And, I mean, I love how, you know, Kurt Jurgens, the sort of Duncan character, he's in his sort of Nauru shirt and he's there at that, at that dinner party early on in the film when Alan Alda and, and Paula, Paula and Miles have started to be sort of inculcated into Duncan and Roxanne, his, his daughter slash lover's, you know, world. And every all of these occult films, they have to have a sort of weird entourage, a weird jet set, Euro trash entourage of, of weirdos who are sort of kind of in on the joke, in, in on the Satanism thing. You've got that in Rosemary's Baby. You've got that in so many of these films. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was looking back at the other films that 20th Century Fox released around this time. And, you know, they, they released both Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and Myra Breckenridge just months before this and uh, like when i saw the party scene like of course i was in the beyond the valley of the dolls headspace i'm like this is the exact same kind of thing the camera's whirling around everything is just bananas there's a dog wearing a human mask there's a lot of people wearing uh other people's i read somewhere that the dog is wearing a william shatner mask I heard that as well, though I did hear that it, if you slow it down, it really doesn't look like him. It I haven't done like the frame by frame. Me, yeah. But we know that that Shatner had mass out there. Thank you, John Carpenter. Yeah. When, and I don't know how you pronounce this gentleman's name, King 
Dean, I think is might be. He's a, I don't know if he is Asian or just looks very Asian. I think he is Asian. He was in the Manchurian Candidate, and when he shows up, I'm just like, okay, yeah, things are bad when this guy shows up, and it really did remind me of the end part of Rosemary's Baby when you have all the let's call them representatives from around the world. So this kind of multicultural Satanist cabal. So as soon as he was there, I was like, oh, okay, yeah. I thought for sure that he was the same guy who sold Trapper John the uh, pinstripe suit with the stripes going the wrong way, but <laughs> that's a different guy. This is Mr. Yu, the tailor, Captain Pierce. Honored, sir. Honored. May your needle be true and your flies always straight. I guess my mind was just very into MASH at that point. I was more thinking MASH than Valley of the Dolls. But it is interesting, though, too, Rain, that you brought up Myra Breckenridge, which is almost a body swap thing again, because you have Myron going to Myra in that. Absolutely. Older works for the part of Miles because we asso- I associate him as that kind of ultimate, and it's the MASH thing, the slacker, you know, the, the sort of hipster slacker guy, the anti-establishment, and Miles is that kind of person in the film. You know, he's flunked out at Juilliard. You get the sense he never really tried that much. He doesn't really care. He just sort of bops through life, and you could if you were, I suppose, married to, you know, spectacular Bissett, it would be much easier to bop through life. The way he gets that second chance, an easy way out with Duncan. So he goes to interview Duncan Eli, globally famous patrician pianist. You could see immediately Eli's going, oh, the hands. They would be great to use if when I take over Miles' body. What I really liked about this watch, and I think I might have read far too much into this film on my fourth or fifth watch, is that I think Duncan just embraced, Miles kind of knows this, and he just jumps in. It's, it's, that, it's that 60s hedonist thing. It's that, you know, he's like, I don't know who these people are, but they like me. I, oblivious to all the signs that he's basically being groomed as a body swap for Duncan's spirits. But he just digs the attention, he digs Roxanne, and he just doesn't care. He's jumping in head first. And Paula, his wife, Jacqueline Bissett, is the one that goes, oh, hang on a second, I'm a bit bit hinky on the this couple, especially when I go to the New Year's Eve party and, and, and dad and the daughter are pashing quite badly and there's all these all these weirdos and they put a they put a mask on their dog and she's she's a bit smarter about all of this, whereas Miles Heath just jumps in head first. Yeah, the thing that came through a little bit more in the book than it does in the movie is that idea of Miles and Paula being hungry for things. I mean, we get the the thing in the movie of her name-checking the Shalimar perfume, which then plays a, a real part in the narrative. But in the book, there's a little bit more name-checking of brands, and it feels like they're very brand-conscious. Like, we do get in the movie, they talk about the Hermes scarf that they sell to the rich people in Paula's shop, but we don't have necessarily that. They're not necessarily gold diggers, but I think that Miles is, to your point, Andrew, very impressed, especially with the opulence of the Duncan Eli estate and all of the things that he has. And then when Duncan passes that, you know, he's again, lavishes him with gifts, but he's basically lavishing himself. He's just like, Oh yeah, I'm just going to die and move my soul into miles. And then I will gift myself all of these things, including Roxanne. And yeah, I was very taken aback at the, the first time I watched it. I was like, Oh yeah, they're in another room when they're kissing. And then when I rewatched it, I was like, Oh no, 
Duncan and his daughter are are making out in plain view of everyone. That's really bad. I know. Creepy. That didn't really settle with me when I was a kid at all. I didn't register that on that level at all somehow. So I wonder I wonder how much of that was tweaked for television. In the book too, if I'm it's been a been a month or so since I read the book, but I think in the book too, it's very clear sort of what a slacker Miles is. And, you know, Duncan's always asking him to play the piano together. And Miles is kind of crap. And everyone else can see it, that, you know, Miles is kind of his crap on the piano and that Duncan's just basically blowing sunshine up his ass so that he can sort of lull him into a false sense of security. But but Miles doesn't care and doesn't see it. And Paula's, there. Paula's not assertive enough at the time to go, actually, you were kind of crap in that piano duo you did with uh, Duncan and they're just telling you this because, hey, they want to take your body. Not that she knows that either. But going to your point, Rain, about the Duncan-Roxanne kiss and how weird that was, there's a lot of weird sexual stuff in this film. But I I just think is eventually, you know, Duncan and Roxanne do this quite well executed, I think, in in a cinematic way, a cult transference ceremony where Duncan, who is supposedly dying of leukaemia and, you know, uh, Miles goes over one stormy night and... It's just a trap and they basically transfer Duncan's soul or essence or spirit, whatever you want to call it, into Miles's body. And Miles comes home and, of course, a good occult transference will make you quite horny. That's just a proven sort of fact. But, no, but Paula's almost instantly hinky on this. You know, she knows that the, the Japanese food, his, his tastes, but my, Miles' taste has become more expensive. He changes the way he dresses. It's the cravats and blazers. You know, this whole thing, Miles is spending even more time with Roxanne. She kind of knows that, hang on a sec, this is not my husband, but she's so jazzed on the fact that there's all this new sexual energy in, in their relationship that she doesn't really sort of seem to see it for a while. She's so, she's too busy digging the new sexual spark that comes with sleeping with the partition classical pianist who's taken over her husband's body to really think straight about this, or maybe she can't quite co- comprehend it. And there's, it's not long after Duncan's taken over Miles's body. He's not even really trying to hide the fact that he's Duncan anymore, which I just gives it a really, gives it a really weird vibe. Yeah, he throws out those things about how crap their scotch is, and she kind of picks up. I mean, yeah, there's initially some hesitancy, but it's really they go down to uh, Mexico, and he starts complaining about some noises, and she starts playing some noise, and I'm, I'm just like, okay, I'm not exactly sure what you're doing, but it's like, yeah, you remember this from the last time we were here, and he has no memory of it, doesn't recognize it at all. And then they have that little catchphrase that they do where they say, love, 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 and he doesn't know to say it back to her. And I'm surprised that they don't just like do like, you know, zoom in on her face, like, oh my God, something's wrong. But it really takes her a little while to realize that. And I'm okay with that. I think that it works well for the narrative that she can tell that things are up, but it really takes her a while before she can put all those pieces together. Because obviously it's such a bizarre concept that this spirit is going to move into your husband's body. There are a couple of things that really don't sit with me economically with this film. He's only got $100,000. And I know that $100,000 in 1971 is a different number than it is now. But still, it's not new, new, new kind of scotch. 
you know, as a lifestyle choice. It's, you know, it's like if I'm engineering, if, if I'm Duncan and I'm engineering this, why am I limiting it to a hundred thousand? I mean, like, whatever, this is a, this is a very, very like snippy little complaint, but I'm just like, if I'm Jacqueline Bissett and I'm like, look, dude, it's only a hundred thousand dollars. Calm down. This is uh let's sock away a lot for our daughter to go to college. It's very Dr. Evil. One million dollars. Yeah, that's right. One hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> On the other hand, my other my other economic complaint, just so I can shoehorn it in, is who opens up a boutique 14 days before Christmas? So maybe her economic sense isn't quite like popping the way it should. <laughs> Again, in the book, it feels like that is more of an established business, that that's something that she and uh, Maggie have been working on for a while, and it's down in the village. That's one of the biggest changes for me with the book is that who wants to be on the New York set when we can actually film this in L.A. and have stately Wayne Manor and all of these locations that we know of. So that change of location helps in some ways, and it definitely tries to help distance the film a little bit more from Rosemary's Baby, because as I'm reading it, I'm just like waiting for, you know, Guy to show up and buy Rosemary something at their store. You know, it is very, this whole idea of this, the older, you know, the older man kind of, you know, the, and, and there's even, um, uh, the people that, run i think they're they either live or they're neighbors of theirs but they will help take over the store it's this gay couple and i'm like oh well her friend hutch in the in rosemary's baby he was coded as gay and i'm just like i'm glad that you guys are doing something to separate yourselves from rosemary's baby because i was almost going to joke before we started to record that we could have a drinking game as far as how many times we're going to say rosemary's baby in this oh, episode for sure. Oh, sure. totally, totally. I mean, think think about that. The similarities don't stop there. I mean, it's the Mephisto Waltz has got the dream that's not really a dream. So, you know, in Rosemary's Baby, they've got that extraordinary dream sequence when Satan rapes Rosemary. Just then they've got in Mephisto Waltz, they've got that dream that's not a dream when Miles, who's actually Duncan, is performing the sort of occult ceremony on, on their daughter, Abby, and murdering her. You know, they've got the parallel between those two men between um, John Cassavetti's character in uh, Rosemary's Baby and, and Miles Clarkson, these these two ambitious men sort of, you know, want to get ahead and find these sort of older men who basically take them under their wing and, and appear to offer an easy way to become rich, to become successful. And, of course, you've got the key thing, which is that the gaslighting men of the woman. You know, in Rosemary's case and also in Paula's case, they basically realise something is up. They begin to realise, hang on a second, there's all these strange things happening and, and they basically begin to realise the occults at play here and that I'm I'm the victim of an occult conspiracy. And their husbands, or in, in, in Paula's case, their husband, who's actually a patrician classical pianist, gaslight them ferociously about it and no one no one sort of believes them. You know, there's so many parallels, as you say, between Rosemary's Baby and the Mephisto Walks. And it was in, in all the reviews that I read of it, you know, were, were definitely referencing that in so many ways. And what I thought was so fascinating, that Cinema Fantastique article that you posted up, Andrew, in which the director claims that it's, he thinks that it's better than Rosemary's Baby, which 
I, I mean, that was just so funny to me. And then, of course, like I kept thinking about that when I watched it again after reading that. I was just like, I'm trying to get myself in that headspace where I think I actually think this movie is somehow better than Rosemary's Baby. And like beat by beat, I just can't I can't justify that. I would love to have made him justify that statement. Well, Ryan, you know, it's, it's like my late father used to say, man, sometimes you've got to beat your own drum because no one else is going to. Absolutely <laughs> That's true. So he's, do, he's, he's, doing, he's doing that, you know. He's doing hero's um, work. Yeah. Well, then there's weird real-life things, how uh, Barbara Parkins, the Roxanne character, that she stood up in uh, Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski's wedding. I know we talked a lot about the Manson stuff when we talked about Rosemary's Baby a few years ago, but this was post-Manson murders, and that it's set in L.A. It kind of has more of that flavor of there are these weirdos that live in L.A. that are into strange religions, including Satanism, so it almost kind of plays into that a little bit better, obviously, than Rosemary's Baby, which is all New York and pre-Manson. It is that. that. I mean, there's so many cases of that. There's that wonderful scene after Duncan is killed, or Duncan has transferred his body, and they're, they're burying Duncan's body, and Roxanne basically says, a sort of gives thanks to the devil in French. It's just as well that no one else can speak, can speak French, you know. And, and Paula says, that's a bit weird. And Duncan slash Miles said, oh, look, everyone's entitled to their religion. So hostile, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Calm down. Yeah. I'm sorry to labour this point, but I think it is key to the, to the film, to the story. As I say, for the first part of the film, she's so jazzed that the sex is so good. She's just not even thinking. It's all just going over her head. She does, she, and as you say, he's, he's got great fingers now. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Almost immediately, Duncan is so mean to her and so... So standoffish and so basically Duncan, Miles slash Duncan. And she doesn't get it for quite a long time. You know, it's only, it's only when Abby is killed that she begins to realize, oh, hell, you know, something's going on here. Poor Abby. Poor trusting Abby. Yeah, it didn't have much of a shot in the film, really, did she? I know. I know. Because that's the other great, that's the other key thing of a lot of occult 70s film is the presence of an animal. You know, like in the, this, I think there's also some parallels to the, even though it was made several years before, I mean, several years later, to uh, Richard Donner's The Omen in 1977. You know, there's a lot of those similar themes in terms of a woman who's been gaslit by a, a situation and by a cult sort of, the, the occult forces surrounding it, and the dog. When Roxanne gives, they're in Mexico, so Duncan slash Miles and Paula are in Mexico together. And they come back and uh, Roxanne's just dropped off the rotwheeler at Paula and Duncan slash Miles' house because Abby really likes the dog. It's like, oh, you really should be twigging onto this now, you know? And, of course, there's the dog, there's the dog in The Omen. Yeah, I feel very bad for Pamela and Ferdin because she is, and apparently she was there a lot more in the earlier version of it. But I do like that. When we meet her uh, as Abby in the film, that she's drawing that huge bat and that that's where she writes Duncan Eli's name because she's taking a message. I was like, oh, that's nice. That's really nice. Yeah, I like her character. I, I I do think that she's really wonderfully precocious, though I have to say her voice always puts me on edge, not just because she was Lucy from uh, the Charlie Brown movie, but more because of her character in Star Trek. And just like that episode freaked me the fuck out when I was younger, that particular one that she was in. Hi, hi. 
will go far away, far to see. Friendly angel, come to me. She was the little girl in, in uh, The Beguiled in 1971, which is another creepy as hell film. 71 was a really big year for her, if memory serves. Because yeah. I think she was also in What's the Matter with Helen the same year. It is interesting too, though, because I'd, I'd, I'd ask you to, to sort of, if you can, develop a bit more about the televisionness of the film. Because I, you've, you've both mentioned that I, that struck me too. That it does have a sort of made for television vibe. But how do you, how do you define, I couldn't quite put my finger on what that is though. What, how can you define a, a made for TV film apart from the fact that, as you say, they have these built in ad breaks? There's a a little bit of a cheapness to it. It doesn't. It feels like there's a lot of stuff being shot on sound stages. I mean, they do a good job when it comes to integrating outside and inside. But when it comes to inside, a lot of it feels very sound stagey to me. And then there's that weird overuse of the uh, star filter all the time. Like even when it's not necessary, I think at the dinner party they already have the star filter going on so like third fourth scene of the film they've already got it happening i mean i can understand where it might be a little bit of a overwhelming feeling for paula and miles to be at this party with all of these kind of more hoity-toity type people but i'm like okay why are you shooting this a little gauzy a little dream filtery type type of thing when it it's not a dream, you know, and then as we go on, I do appreciate the dream sequences quite a bit. I appreciate the use of mirrors a lot in that, especially because we have so much doubling, but I don't know if it's just that the sets really feel like sets that might be part of it. I mean, like I said, the score doesn't belie to me at all that this was a television movie. This feels very much like a rich theatrical score, but yeah, just something about the camera work just really speaks to me as far as being cheapish. Yeah, the tightness of a lot of the shots. And I think about like, you know, the the really animated um, like party scenes, you know, I feel like, you know, to to bring up Beyond the Valley of the Dolls again, like I feel like those were more like swooping cameras, whereas this was more like jerky, like very, qu- you know, very quickly moving um, tight shots. So it's a little more, it's a little, it feels a little more frenetic to me. Um, as 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 a as a style and yeah and maybe it's just a you know the cameras that they shot it on and and I and it has to be maybe the way that you know the cinematographer looked at his his work and like it's almost all television and I feel like if you're thinking in a television frame you're going to bring that no matter what you know the end end result is going to be I think I mean of course now like everything's different, you know, but then it was, it it seemed like there was a very clear delineation between what's a television thing and what's a movie thing and what's a cinematic, especially because, you know, they were still, you know, using what cinemascope and, you know, these kinds of things, like, I guess coming out of that a little bit, but. Quinn Martin is very, he makes TV movies. So he's cutting this like, he's cutting this like a TV movie. Whereas when Koss is keener to make a sort of slightly paint on a slightly larger canvas. So a lot of the cuts, a lot of the tightness of the story does, the way it zooms along does feel much more made for television for me. Having said that, though, I, I still think it's got quite a lush quality. Quite a bit of that um, made-for-TV stuff does. As I was reading about the Mephisto Waltz and about all that sort of occult stuff in the 70s, I was thinking about the other occult films that were really influenced, occult TV 
sort of films that were really influential for me. And I mean, I was thinking like Crowhaven Farm. Oh, it was a really, it was a sort of basically about this woman who moves into a farmhouse and it goes back to, to times when, 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 when witches were killed and she sort of starts seeing all these occult, you know, sort of Puritans killing witches. But it's got, got a very lush feel to it. Like a lot of these made-for-TV films, they, they have a, a cheapness and, they, and, a, and an economy to them, but they're still quite lush to me. Even watching the opening credit sequence, every time it gets me very excited. It puts me right back in that like childhood space of like, ooh, this is going to be very spooky and all these like, um, you know, uh, imbricated images with, you know, with these like very vibrant colors layered on top of each other. And I was like, ooh, I'm just in for like a treat here, a Quinn Martin treat, <laughs> you know? And uh, and I think that sets, you know, the, the titles really set that up, I think, really well. I think all the sets really beautiful in some ways i wish that we could just like see more like really lingering shots of those sets so i could look at what's all there because i'm i i feel like the set designers had a great time with us yeah i love the setup of those life masks and how there's one missing and when they're all there it's basically a pentagram shape of the life masks and i love the cabinet with that purple liquid or bluish liquid that they use through all the satanic rituals the way that the book is set up i i really like that that inner sanctum of uh duncan eli's i thought that was very nice and i do like some of the camera work as far as when Paula is going upstairs to that room, how they're doing it as a point of view shot with a very wide angle lens. So you have that distortion. You've got the, uh, the lesbian couple that's on the stairs. You've got the old guy who tries to grab Paula and basically gives the lens a kiss. I thought that was very effective as well. And the thing that I liked the most about this movie, the first time I watched it and in through all subsequent viewings is I like that. Paula is there from the beginning, but she really takes a spotlight once Miles is possessed because he can't be our main character anymore. There is no more Miles after that. And they make a really smooth transition to Paula being our protagonist. As far as I'm concerned, it's Jacqueline Bissett's movie. You know, I'm like almost mad that Alan Alda got top billing. He wasn't even a star yet. Absolutely. Pre-Mash, very early in his career. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Whereas, you know, yeah, she is great in this, I think, and she's really, you know, the housewife who will literally do whatever it takes to keep her husband, even, you know, if it includes summoning the devil and that whole development of her character, that desperation that, you know, is, is done really well. She tips her hand partway through the movie in a way that like really shows her to be one of the most despicable characters, which is actually shocking. I think when you, you know, you first think, Oh, she's just a, you know, trying to do her best, but you know, amongst this film where like all these other things are happening, incest, child murder, dog lynching, all these other things are happening. She tears a newspaper out of a bound library. I know. I know. That was outrageous. That really hurt. Horrifying. I'm like, oh my God, you are a bad person. (laughs) And there's no reason for her to do that. It wasn't like it was some sort of piece of evidence that she could then show people. I mean. Guys, it was the 1970s. No one came out alive. This is so fascinating about it. It's it's a. As I say, this is, this is the first film I can remember when someone had basically gone through, first a cult film, someone had gone through that. I'd seen heaps of occult films where people 
women usually are destroyed by occult forces. But this is the first one I can remember seeing where she totally turns the tables and goes, no, fuck this shit. I'm going to summon up Satan. I'm going to do a deal across Roxanne's head, and I'm basically going to swap my body. I'm going to put my my spirit into Roxanne's form so that I can then live with with uh, my husband slash Duncan. I know for listeners out there that must be getting very confusing, the, the, the Duncan slash um, Miles thing. You know, she totally, she breaks into the mansion. She steals the occult book. She kills the dog. Then she swaps bodies with Roxanne fakes her own suicide, and then as the credits go, you know, the flames of hell. Makes her best friend to see, discover the suicide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And as Wencos says, here's a girl who deliberately kills herself so, can, so she can be with the devil again. It's very decadent, bizarre behaviour, and most American audiences with their puritanical notions of good and evil find this very difficult to approve or accept. What does she do afterwards? What does she do I love that. I love and hate that it's just like it's left, you know. But what does she? What does she do to Duncan slash Miles? That end scene is what made me read the book because I'm just like, oh well, there's no way they can end it this way. They totally do. It's the exact same end. Yeah, I'm like, okay, what are you going to? Are you going to murder this guy? Are you just happy to have Miles's body? Is Miles still in there someplace? I mean, what is? Yeah, what's your game plan here now that you're stuck in Roxanne's body and with this guy in Miles's body who isn't Miles. I'm like, what is your plan? Mm-hmm. No, we don't know. It just ends that way. Have you guys seen Romero's um, Hungry Wives, aka Season of the Witch? Yeah, I was about to mention that earlier because of that that living room scene, you know, echoing what you had said earlier. That's a filter. Hungry Wives you know, it's basically about this woman called Joan White, who's a bored housewife living in suburban Pittsburgh. God, they make it look dreary. And she's got this emotionally manipulative husband and she's got a rebellious, not particularly nice daughter and she's really pissed off with her life. And so, you know, to the point where she's having dreams where her husband is leading her around like a dog and even hands her to another man to put to a kennel. And after trying all these things, psychoanalysis, self-media, alcohol, pot, she basically meets this other woman who's a witch and decides, I'm going to get rid of my dreary life and become a witch. And it's sort of the film is also all, all about, you know, witchcraft as a way of feminist kind of expression, you know. And, and in, in some respects, it's buried a bit more, in uh, buried a lot more in the in Mephisto Waltz. But it's that final act that um, Jacqueline Bassett, uh, as Paula does, summoning up the devil and going, you know, bugger this, I'm going to do a deal here and I'm, I'm going to be the one in charge. I'm going to put myself in the driver's seat here, is, is again, using fem- using witchcraft for a feminist sort of uh, end. I, I love it, you know. Absolutely. I thought about that a lot going going through this this time. I love that movie. I love Hungry Wives, Season of the Witch, whatever you want to call it. I love that movie. I have to say real quick that I was so impressed by Alan Alda's ability to fake the piano. I thought for sure that he was a master pianist and that I was listening to a commentary and the guy's like, no, he doesn't know how to play piano. And then to find out, and I never knew this and I feel a little guilty, I never knew that Alan Alda's father was an actor and that his father played George Gershwin in a 1945 movie called Rhapsody in Blue. And his father didn't know piano either. So there are these amazing piano fakers that run into all the family. I kept watching and I was, I was 
pretty impressed. I'm not a great piano player, but he was doing the right movements. I mean, I played a little piano for a lot of years, and yeah, I was it looked very, believable. And he wasn't just going bang, 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 right. bang, bang. And there weren't the obvious cuts to you know, here's Alan Alda in a medium close up. Here are the hands that they actually show the hands, especially in that concert sequence. I was like, wow, that looks really good. I, I love Alan Alda. I know that this probably isn't his favorite movie. In fact, I know that I read something saying he's like, oh, that wasn't my favorite. I just I love him in this. And I, I love I love it when he plays evil. If I can mention another movie, um, you know, he played uh, another evil role soon after this in a film called uh, To Kill a Clown, um, which is basically a redux of Straw Dogs. So, you know, he's the the evil force in there. But I'm like, I love it when, you know, somebody who's like that we know and love is just kind of a goofy, wisecracking misfit can actually just be like abject evil. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he looks really good in a black turtleneck with Roxanne when they're, you know, they're, they're committing their weird occult ceremonies. Is Adam Driver the Alan Alda of this of this time? Oh, Wow. I don't know if our driver has the same slacker sort of vibe that older sort of manifests, but I'm not sure that anyone does, you know? Yeah, I could see that whole Four Seasons thing being that movie with uh, Driver and, and Scarlett Johansson where he pounds the wall. Yeah. I mostly just know it from the meme. I don't know the movie itself. I, I try not to watch couples fighting movies unless they're directed by uh, Woody Allen. Then I'm all in for it. But yeah, I've seen way too many Alan Alda films as well. I'm just like, yeah, I remember, you know, same time next year was a favorite. Four Seasons was one. Betsy's Wedding. Yeah, I was, I was all about Alda for a lot of years. And yeah, I think he's, he's fantastic. And I like that when he becomes Duncan, there are some more obvious things that are going on, but he doesn't play it like a completely different person. He's not suddenly, you know, he doesn't have a an, a German accent all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do like that he's very averse to smoking, though, because there's that line when he first meets Duncan Eli, and he's like, put that disgusting cylinder away. And, <laughs> and then when he is taking over Miles, he's just like, you know, hey, a guy just died of leukemia, you know, take it easy on the smoking kind of thing. It's like, oh, okay, that's nice. It's not, you know, he doesn't start mustache twirling right then. And I was curious, too, the, the, there was one commentary that I listened to. I wasn't a big fan of this one commentary, but but they did bring up an interesting question, which was, is this the first go-round for Duncan Eli or is this something like he and Roxanne have done repeatedly? Did they screw up somehow and now she's in the daughter that's the body that's the daughter? You know, maybe they were married at one point. I don't know. But I thought that was an interesting mind question. That's another thing that I don't don't quite understand. And I think that, that the Roger Ebert, Ebert review kind of gets at this. Like, I think that there's like some missteps in the cosmology of this that don't quite make sense. So what happens to Bill? What happens to the daughter? You know, where, where are they going? Because it seems, I don't know, it, it, the film just moves past them very, very, very quickly, but like, it seems like the daughter would end up in Roxanne's body, which is very weird. Then that would make it so that, uh, you know, the daughter is replaced by the mother when the mother takes over Roxanne's body, which is even like, I don't know, 
you'd spend some time with your psychoanalyst about that. I thought those masks, you know, when when the, the first time that Paula goes into the Duncan study at, in his house and she, as you say, sees all those masks on the wall, I thought they were previous times they've done this, which would actually be stretching back a bit. I admit that's what I've done. This is not the first, this is not the first time that they've they've done this. Although I agree that once you start unpacking it, it does get kind of weird. Where where is everyone going? There's a lot of occult transference going on. I think you've got to play that father daughter thing, the Duncan Roxanne thing, with a bit of fluidity. I mean, it was the early seventies, and so there's there's a lot of weird stuff going down and where they are actually father, daughter, or just pretend to be father and daughter and have pretended for so long that they're sort of in that groove is a is an open question, I think. Well there's also that newspaper that we we're talking about with the uh the, the dog lynching. I, I'm glad that you called it that. The whole idea of the dog footprints that led up to the wife, but then you didn't see any footprints that led away. And I'm like, okay, was the dog possessed by something? I mean, is this... Because they do talk about that a little bit more in the book, too, as far as Bradford Dillman's death, the William Delancey character. And I'm like, okay, why was Roxanne married to this other guy if she is obviously in love with her father? Like, what's the story there? But they talk in the book that he was running down the beach. Like we just come out you know, with Paul and see the dead body on the beach with the blue liquid on the forehead. But in the book, they talk about how he was running down the beach and he seemed to be running from something, possibly Robin, the dog. So it's like, is that dog something that they can just send and it appears and disappears? Like, is that dog just constantly, you know, something that they can summon and, and have go away. And I do like that again, in the book, they, they named the full dog as what is it? Robin, Robin Goodfellow, I think. Goodfellow, thank you, which is another name for Puck the Demon. So it's like, oh, okay. So there are some clever things in there. Which which explains a little bit more, I think, if you remember, there's the presence of that man in the Black Derby hat who Paula sees in her dreams and who makes a bit of an, makes a bit of an appearance at the very end, who I sort of thought was like Satan's emissary. You know, Satan's always got a very often Satan's always got a, a dapper a dapper earthly manifestation or emissary who helps out around the place with, with things that the, the hoofed one cannot do from the pits of hell. His presence, I think, explains a bit more in the book. And I, the only mention of, I can't imagine whether, I'm not sure whether you guys picked up on this or whether I'm imagining it, but in the dream sequence when Miles slash Duncan uh, murders Abby, there's a silhouette of a guy in a bowler hat at one point in the dream, and that's the only time that the dream references the Mephisto Waltz movie references the man in the Black Derby hat. But having said that, at the very end, and I like the way that at the very end when Paula has summoned up evil, we don't actually see the person who comes through. You know, we don't actually see what comes through the door, although her face tells us she's terrified of it. Whether I've often been thinking, oh, was that the guy in the Black Derby hat or was that Satan or what did you conjure up? Love that scene. I do really like that they don't show us because it could be really cheesy. I mean, that's the one very smart thing that Polanski does too in Rosemary's Baby is just showing us the eyes and not showing us the rest because it could get really cheesy really fast. Absolutely. And and you just see that Paula is terrified. That's all you see. Her face is shaking, you know. And that's really all you need. 
Yeah, and go Paula for having a moxie to just go and do that. And I do love that she just comes in and is just like, hey, made a bargain with the master. <laughs> Fuck you, Roxanne. I really like Barbara Parkins as Roxanne. I think that she plays that role so well. And she's, you know, very sexy, very evil. Just really, it's like, okay, I can see why Miles is going for this woman even before he's Duncan Eli. And then when he becomes possessed by Duncan, I'm like, okay, yeah, this works. And that she, you know, just seems, she's just trying to help out. Oh, you want the keys to the place? Yeah, sure. Here's the keys to the place. So basically you can move in and be with me full time. It's like, that's nice. And her whole, she's got the boy toy and stuff. Oh yeah. We were going to go to what Jamaica or whatever, but there was a hurricane and my boy toy didn't, was too afraid to do that. So it's like, Okay, you know, you go, girl. So I thought she was a great antagonist. The other thing that maybe explains bits that, that complicates it actually doesn't explain anything is that scene when so post when Abby is murdered in the occult ceremony and Paul is looking around for an ally and she basically hooks up briefly with with um, Bradford Dillman, who is Roxanne's ex husband, and he tells her that story about how she had a baby but it was a monster. There's also there's, there's that question about where, where is all this body transference going? As you said, Rain, where are these people who, when, when you've got the blue dot on your head, where, where are you going? Do they just have a holding pen somewhere where they, but there's also the whole notion of Roxanne and Duncan's relationship with evil. As you said, Mike, their ability to potentially summon up this dog that kills people. The evil in Roxanne means that she's, has, was that the sort of spin-off from this this movie, which could have been Roxanne getting pregnant and maybe having the Antichrist and all that, to, a la Rosemary's Baby? There's a lot. There's a lot going in going on when you start to unpick that those satanic threads. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back with an interview with Jacqueline Bissett right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate, and they just have too many levers and buttons. There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. We asked the man on the street what he thought about the After Movie Diner website and podcast, but sadly he had never heard of either and was on his way to the doctors to have a mole removed. Or it could have been a badger. He wasn't sure. It felt bigger than a mole. Also, he wasn't sure how it got up there in the first place. Anyway, we asked all the famous people, like Michael Ironside, Fred the Hammer Williamson, Ted Raimi, Barbara Crampton, Cynthia Rothbrook, and so on, that they've interviewed over there on the After Movie Diner website and podcast what they thought about the After Movie Diner website and podcast. But most of them said that if we quoted them, we would be hearing from their comical southern lawyers complete with bow tie, meat gut, and brow mopping hang. So instead, we say who cares what anyone thinks of you after Movie Diner website and podcast. You are awesome just the way you are, so don't you go changing. If you want to see for yourself, go to AfterMovieDiner.com or find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner, doing it their own way since 2011. The action-packed thriller, American Insurrection, is now streaming on Redbox. 
After a powerful militia seizes control of the U.S., a group of friends try to escape the growing violence and will do whatever it takes to survive. Stream American Insurrection instantly on Redbox today. Rated R for Paramount Pictures. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at FatherMalone.com and on iTunes. Every good villain has a bad beginning. Emma Stone and Emma Thompson star in Disney's Cruella, which follows the early days of one of cinema's most notorious and notoriously fashionable villains. Add Cruella to your Disney movie collection today and enjoy deleted scenes, bloopers, and behind-the-scenes featurettes. Available now on digital and on 4K Ultra HD, Blu-ray, and DVD September 21st. Where were you at in your career when you did Mephisto Waltz? Well, very early on, being in America for the, I came in 67, I'd done The Sweet Ride, done The Detective, I'd done Bullet. I'm not sure if I, around the 869, had I done The Grasshopper? I'm not sure. I think, I really don't know exactly. I can't remember. I could tell you if you needed to know, I could tell you. When do you feel that you really hit because i remember you all the way back in cul-de-sac and was it say bullet or what would you say like this put me on the map well it depends on what level press wise it was detective because of the surrounding the, the fact that i had replaced mia farrow and sinatra and she were going through the beginning of their problems well during that and that got a lot of publicity and apart from that i didn't get a lot of, i hadn't never had a press agent at any of these times that was the studio pushing and the PR. So that made a difference. But it was not, you know, it was a bit of a shock. I wasn't set up to be very public at all at that time. I didn't know really what I was supposed to do or handle it. I was very, pretty inexperienced, you know. When you were pretty young at the time, too. Yes. Well, I was quite young when I, well, not that young. I mean, I felt quite grown up at that time. But I, even though I was, I was young, yeah. I just wasn't. I didn't know about it, really that. I was not really avid to have that. I was sort of thinking of my future career as being a rather sort of intimate and private affair. I really didn't know much about um, publicity and the value of it or was quite shy. And the fact that I was suddenly thrust into a movie with Frank Sinatra without having had any explanation of why or how or the studio had put me there, was all rather, that was rather baffling why Why had they chosen me? And um, was this the wolf? I remember, it was, must have been after. It must have been after that. I felt it was a solid role, you know. I mean, what makes you feel solid, I think, is when the role is solid. Something to play. And it's always more difficult to play a small part than to play a big part. Because you haven't got enough scenes to be able to put 
stamp your character with the traits that you might wish to give it. And if you don't have a scene where you can do things, put it on the film. I mean, it's the old line. If it's not on the page, it's not on the screen or in the place. The same thing. I was not at all into stories of this type. It wasn't something I had ever really seen any. The business with the, <laughs> with the, I don't know what you call it, supernatural or all that stuff. I was completely unaware of any of that stuff. I thought it was really silly. And, and I've, there were times when I felt really silly doing some of the scenes. I remember with drawing lines in a circle and all that stuff. I can't quite remember what to do. My memory of the scenes were those things, but there was a very, I was supposed to be attacked by a dog, I remember a scene, which stays very vividly in my mind. But that was because I was frightened of being bitten. They had a couple of dogs. Well, I remember one was called Vicky, and the other one, I was not aware that there were several. They covered my neck with apple applesauce, when the dog kind of came at me, and then once it had come in at me, it started licking my neck. And that was it. That dog was trained to, to, to be, actually, it was quite an affectionate dog. But when they had it with its teeth back, or maybe that was the other dog, I don't really know. I remember being very scared that I was going to get bitten. But it was quite comedic when this dog started licking my neck. That was one of the using things to me afterwards, but at the time I wasn't. I'd like you to ask me a question because I'm waffling. <laughs> you said that you weren't that interested in the supernatural. And, and yeah, I think that was probably your first horror film that you were in. And yeah, I was curious as far as how was it working with Alan Alda and Paul Wenkos? Well, it was, it was good. Alan was good. He was solid. But he was very nice. He, he was a decent, very decent man. I think he was not an, a typical actor, I would say. He didn't... Um, he was very, very decent. He was a very much married man. He was not a flirtatious man. He, we had scenes where we had to make out a bit. And there was a, quite a lot of comedy there because one particular scene when I just, once his body had been taken over by this sexy man spirit, his lovemaking was getting much hotter than it had been during, for the last years we'd been married. The story, obviously. And I, we, were, we were making love on a bed with a Spanish bed had a kind of Spanish theme and it had a rather complicated where you put your head with a behind it the bed head was a rather complicated bed head with I don't know it was flowers it was made of metal I remember and I remember putting my getting my hand somehow my hand back got sort of caught in the back of the bed head and I was making noises and then Alan was making more noises because he thought it was all the passion of the scene actually Trying to extricate my hand, which had got caught in the shoot, behind. <laughs> and we, we, as we played it, as you do, because once it's going okay, you carry on, right? You don't think about it. You've got don't stop and say, everybody cut, because you've got to be taught not to do that. And when we when, when it was, we stopped the scene, that the crew were turned away from watching because they thought we'd got a bit carried away or something. Something absurd, completely absurd. But it made me laugh a lot afterwards because you never know what the crew are thinking. Those kind of scenes. It was pretty tame stuff compared to nowadays. One thing I really like about the film is that it starts off and you think that it's going to be the Alan Alda story and really it changes to be your character story so much. Does it? I don't really know. I don't remember it so, so well. Yeah, you become kind of the investigator. Really, there are so many scenes where it's just you and you and other actors versus 
it really doesn't follow Alan Alda's character that much once that change happens. Well, maybe that's true. I, you know, well, let's think that. How was it working with Paul Wenkos, the director? It was mixed. I liked him. I liked him. I found him slightly annoying because he would he would give me he'd give me sort of line readings at times, and I would feel that he really wanted to be doing the acting at times. I felt he was he was um, at times I felt he was a little over enthusiastic in scenes. I was a bit annoyed with him. I remember throwing glass or something at him, water or whiskey, I don't remember, but I, he irritated me at some point. He was, not, he was a little bit flirtatious. I think it was just part of his, his image of himself as the director. <laughs> he was maybe a little bit vain, but we got on fine most of the time. But I just, I don't remember any great conflict, but just at times I found him a little irritating. He was a good looking man, not a bad looking man at all. And he was nice with Alan and as I remember, it was all pretty smooth. It was a big part for me, so I was very preoccupied with just the daily amount of work. I wasn't used to those sized parts. Yeah, did the film help you in any way, help open any doors for you? I don't know. One never knows that. I don't know. I didn't know about this stuff. You know, I didn't know about career building or steps of things. I was just looking to work and uh, and try and be good. I, I didn't have a kind of life plan concept or anything just thought, well, I'll probably go back to Europe and try and be in French films and Italian films is really what I was thinking mostly. I often felt that even though I was getting parts, that they didn't get me. They didn't get what I had to offer, I felt often. And that continued for quite a few years. I thought, gosh, well, yeah, they would photograph me, but I didn't feel that the photography was incisive or either particularly tender or interesting, I found it was a pretty bland way of filming women. And I felt that not just relative to me, I felt it about many actresses who were European and who would be amazing in European films and, and extremely flat in American films. I didn't feel that direct. I was used to watching films from Europe and I was interested in women's roles in Swedish films and French and Italian films mainly. And the way the skin of the woman was really part of the image and, uh, the sense of femininity and texture of a woman's breathing and being was more in the focus of those directors rather than the way she looked in an, in an American film. I thought they were blandified. And it's, it's been a mystery to me that over the years. It's, I think it's improved a lot. I think there's a lot of very good actresses who are coming off as very good actresses, not good actresses who, know, who you don't realize are good because of the way they're shot. It's complicated. Just because the camera's in front of you does not mean that they've got you. Very, the texture thing, and you need a very observant cinematographer to pull it out of each person. Well, I guess speaking of European films, how was your experience on Day for Night? It was good. Apart from me having to speak French, which was nerve-wracking, and being there, I was impressed with Truffaut, and I liked his work a lot, and I was very flattered to be asked. I was, just couldn't believe that I was there with these French actors, who were part, many of them who had worked with him before. It was a, quite an intimate crew, and people knew each other well, most of them. And just tried to not mess up my English. To try and get, try and, yeah, I was playing, a, at one point he said to me, you don't have, don't worry so much. He said, you're not playing a French person, you're playing someone who's come from America. You can make mistakes, it's not a problem. So that lifted a bit of the anxiety. And if they changed anything at the last minute, I was, I was, 
I couldn't handle it at all. I mean, I couldn't. I had to practice a lot. I had to, any change, you have to give me two or three days before, please, or else I'll slow down the production. I mean, that's been the case when I worked in films often. I mean, when I worked with Chevrolet later on in a film, the crew, the company knew each other. So it's called The Ceremony. La Ceremonie. It was a very good film, actually. Isabelle Huppert and Sandrine Bonner and I played all apart, but I still had to do the French speaking and they went so fast because they knew each other so well. There was hardly any rehearsal. Very difficult. And the nerves, you know. It's funny because I just watched your one of your latest ones, Birds of Paradise, last night, and you were speaking French like it was nobody's business in that one. Well, yeah, my French has improved a lot, yeah. Did I, I hardly said anything in French, didn't I? I spoke a few, I, I spoke in the ballet stuff. I said the old French words. I was so mean. <laughs> well, I followed the script, you know. <laughs> what did you think of it? I kept thinking that it was going to turn into something else. I, I wasn't aware that it was more of a straight-up drama. I guess I'm so used to things like Suspiria. I kept thinking it was going to turn into a horror film at some point. Did you? Mm-hmm. I couldn't watch Suspiria, the one with the Lucas figure Bob. I couldn't. I, it was too weird for me. I, I actually had to turn it off. But the ballet part, but there was no ballet part when I turned it off. They hadn't got to ballet. I was curious. You worked many times with John Houston. What was your experience working with him? Once again, mixed. It was good. Good. He was, um, I found him a little intimidating. He was very gruff. He could be very charming. I kind of felt, I felt when I first met him, which was not, which was, I don't remember which film I met him for. I remember he turned towards me and his eyes were very cold and he was smiling, but his eyes were very cold. And I thought, said this before, I thought, oh, he's, this is a dangerous man. He was very in control of himself and set and on under the volcano. Uh, he wasn't very well on the other thing I did with him, called along with Ava Gardner and Paul Newman. The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean? Yes, I joined the production for like, I was there for two weeks, I think, and he'd almost finished the film and he wasn't well. And he was not dismissive exactly, but he wasn't very focused on me. And in fact, he asked Paul Newman to sort of work with me and practice, which we did briefly. There wasn't much to do in that film. Was just, everybody had these small parts. Many people had these small parts. And, and I, when I was preparing for Under the Volcano, I had to go and see him in Mexico. It was an interesting visit. I was extremely scared to go and nervous because I didn't know what we would talk about. And the script... But there were things in the script I did not like. And I was handed a new script just as I was leaving for the, to go down to, to him. And by the time I, I read it, and by the time I got to the island or the, the place, this sort of strange Las Caletas where he lived, my issues had gone away. I liked it. And I thought, what are we going to talk about? I can't come down here to discuss script and I don't know what to talk with him about. So we ended up talking about alcoholism. And we got on all right. I spent... I think I was there for two, down, for, down there for two nights, and, and then we, 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 I swam with him in the creek just where, where he lived, and he was very civilized and nice, but it was a strange experience. He was, there was nobody around. There was him. His secretary had picked me up from the airport, and we'd come, come with me on a boat, a little boat we'd chugged to the island. I keep saying that there's some sort of a, somehow connected to it. It's not actually an island, I believe, but it feels like an island. And then she'd gone off, and I was like in this very strange insect sounding everywhere, insects 
round and it was spooky, a spooky experience. And I had to spend half the day waiting. When I finally got to see him, which was around 5.30, we got on all right. But he wasn't, he was intimidating. He, you know, he, he didn't do anything to specifically. He just, his, his, all the experience he'd had in his life, and you knew he'd had many experiences and he'd had many wives and he'd had, there was a lot of folklore around him. And people, people projected stuff onto him more than actually that I think that, that happens with, they get projected on. Sinatra was always projected on people putting what they, their fears or their desires, which weren't necessarily happening, onto people. It's a curious thing. I've seen that with Mickey Rourke also. I mean, I've seen Mickey in a press conference. Very quiet, very very gentle, very quiet. And, and yet around him is forms this kind of chaotic energy turmoil. builds, <laughs> And he hardly says a word. And it's such a curious thing. It's to do with public image and seen that with certain people. What was it like working with Paul Bartel on uh, Scenes of a Class Struggle in Beverly Hills? Enjoyable. I liked Paul. It was a bit mad when I read the script. I thought, Lord, what is this? This is what I'm with the relationship with the help and the attitude of the house and these rich, rich women deciding to take on the help. I mean, it was a kind of naughty, slightly scratchy and slightly, slightly bawdy, kind of fun. And he was a well-educated man. Paul Bartel was very different to the image of the film. It was quite pictorial in many ways. What are I you working know. on? Oh, sorry. No. What am I working on now? I'm not working at the moment. Several things hoping to come out. I hope they'll be released. I, I did an independent film called Lauren and Rose, which was a wonderful part for me, wonderful script. It's with uh, an actor called Kelly Blatz, and we play. I play an actress who, an actress who's a bit down on her luck. She has a bad reputation. And she wants to meet this young filmmaker who she's seen a film of his, and she's very impressed with him. Hopes to be impressed by him. It's uh, directed by Russell Brown. And great part. Almost like a two. It's almost like there are but the people in small roles, but basically it's for us. It's like a two. We great deal of dialogue. It's it's a bit static, but it's interesting. What it's well written. And I did a thing, a part in French film called Madeleine Collins, which just played in Venice Festival with Virginia Efira. I played her mother. That was a small part. That character was a tough one too had a bad relationship with her daughter. One of two daughters, she was one of two daughters, and one of them had died. And my, my situation was that I preferred the one who died to the one who was living. That was a tension. The role was, it wasn't focused on, but that was my situation. Was, oh, I did a very interesting role in a French film. And the English title is The Lodger, and the French title is Mess Bass, which is M-E-S-S-E-S, B-A-S-S-E, and that's the story of an old woman who's lost her husband 20 years before. She does not accept it. She does not believe that he's gone. She lives in the world with him. And a young girl who's looking for a place to stay, a student, comes to her house because she hears there's a room. And she, I let her stay. And she, she sort of lives with me. And um, she lives with the, this man who, in terms of being there, obviously is not there. But is he there? Is he there? And she is a sweet girl, an old-fashioned girl, looking for romantic love, hoping for romantic love, not having any, and she's a bit lonely. And our relationship is quite friendly and nice. And she falls 
into a kind of nostalgia for love, and she finds my relationship with my husband, my dead husband, very charming, and she loves the love that we had, and she starts to fall for him. It's glorious, and it becomes a kind of the jealousy starts to rear its ugly head, and it becomes not exactly a horror film, but it's sort of suspenseful. I suppose you could call it a thriller genre. And it was a good part for both of us. We had some, and we had some wonderful reviews in it. So that was nice. I did that in French. That's so nice that you can switch between English and French roles. Yes, it is nice to have that thing, but it doesn't mean that that it, I don't. I do find it much easier to work in English. You know, with enough, enough preparation and rehearsal, I can. But my French has improved a lot, and the, but people assume that I speak that I'm bilingual. I'm not bilingual. I've become a good, I speak good French. I have a very good accent. I have a lot of the idiomatic phrases and stuff and I, a sense of language. But if I'm reading an article in French in a magazine or a newspaper. There's not, so many words I don't know what they mean and so much that I have to look up. And I'm never sure if I'm saying, if I'm reading about something where there's a question of, is it negative or positive? I'm often not sure. There's all those little words that add up not quite sure sometimes. What did it say? Well, a little, a little words that join things up, those sort of little tiny words that you miss an N, and N, it, it, is it, and it's of course two positives, two negatives make a positive in a way. So, I mean, it's complicated. Anyway. <laughs> You've been in so many things over the years, and I'm curious what have been some of your favorites to do? I do, I do enjoy working. I, I think the favorites, you know, that you do them and you... Some experiences are more, you learn more, or you get exposed to something you didn't know, or you get stronger, and you, you like it because you got over certain hiccups, walls that you had to climb, and they become more powerful in your memory. And But I love doing Rich and Famous, because mainly because of Candy, because she was great to work with. I did not find it easy to work with George Cukor. We had some difficulties. The words, Gerald Ayer's script was wonderful. We loved we all loved that script. We, we just, it was joyous to play. I liked doing Anna Karenina, which I did for HBO. No, it wasn't for HBO. That was, no, that was another one. That was a project called Forbidden, which I enjoyed. It was a German character. During the war, I played a woman who was in the resistance, helping Jewish people. That was a very strong character. That was for HBO, the early HBO. It was made for uh, Ray Stark, produced it. I think, I don't remember. Anyway, that was a wonderful role. I enjoyed doing the movie with Gérard Depardieu, which was called Welcome to New not Welcome to New York. It is about five years ago. I played this journalist. This was based on the story of Dominique Strauss-Kahn getting having being accused of sex with a maid in New York. It was a famous story, and I was playing his wife, Anne Sinclair, character. It wasn't specifically them, but it was based on that sort of that theme. Director was Gabriel Ferrar, who was a real character, a real character, but enjoyable and not easy. You know, there. It's very rare that I think I feel like boom, oh, a piece of cake. You know, I don't, I'm not attracted to those pieces. I'm not attracted to that because if I don't have something I can find that's new or that challenges me on some level, it may not be obvious. I don't usually say yes. I don't. The the thing that I did, the role I just did, which just played the other day. Birds of Paradise, I felt I did not get well edited, personally, I felt, because the work character was, in my opinion, it was 
much stronger than it comes out in the film. But that's the choice, you know, that's what you never know. I'm just looking at it. I think that I, I quite enjoyed watching it because I thought the girls were good and I like ballet and I like quite, but personally I felt I was not as interesting as I should have been. I was read. I just saw some clip about the girls were asked what it was like to work with me and <laughs> one of them said, well, I think she was in character all the way through. She was very, she was intimidating. But at the end of the film, she was just lovely and we realized that she liked us. But I, when I met the two girls, I thought, look at these two young things. My goodness, this is hard work there for them. This is going to be so difficult for them. You know, the roles were difficult. They had to do the dance and they had, to, there was so much. And I was so, I thought, well, I've got to just give them everything I can to help them along. So if I'm going to be, I should, must stay, I can't get all palsy and hang out with, them, with the kids and all that feeling. That, so they're, they need to fear me. They need to see him. But when I read that I was in character all the way through, I was a bit taken aback. I hadn't realized putting out such a strong vibe. But I was certainly very conscious that they, I thought I must give them what they, you know, you give them what they need to work there, do their role. Well, definitely came through. I, I felt that you were very intimidating. Well, when you've got all the lines working in your play, in your favor, you know, it happens. <laughs> But there were things I said to them that I thought were too much. I mean, I had to be asked, it was added, back, like, like a sack of potatoes. I thought, oh, my God, that's a tough one to say to a young dancer. But the discipline is necessary, for sure. I used to love ballet, and I, I didn't get to the point where I had to take on some horrific maîtresse de danse. But it's all this haranguing of students is for their own good in the sense that they want to make it they're going to have to stick with it all those sports and incredible how one hears nowadays about what goes on i mean really i was really not quite cruel miss Bissette, it was such a pleasure talking with you well thank you likewise thank you mike We are back, and we were talking about the Mephisto Waltz, and I don't know if it's apparent through what we've talked about so far. I think it is, but really, we can't say enough 
though we'll try to say enough about how prevalent Satan was in the 1970s. I mean, it really does make sense that we had such a satanic panic in the 80s because, my God, we were ready for it, right? I mean, I, <laughs> I, I was afraid of going into forests and finding a whole coven of Satanists. That was like the thing that would scare you. It's like, don't go in there. There's Satan worshippers in the forest. And it's like, oh, man, like that was our boogeyman. We're Satanists. And I think a lot of that comes from all of these movies and TV shows and TV movies that we experienced throughout the entire run of the 70s. Any crime that was mildly weird and, and couldn't quite be explained and took place in the bush, which is, you know, the in Australia's bush or in somewhere creepy, they would always tap, tap on to the end of the story. You know, they're investigating an occult, occult, occult. Or, you know, some sort of Satanist sort of link to it. So it was, was everywhere, you know. And I think, you know, there's reasons why that is, I think, you know, which are both commercial and mystical. I mean, uh, Rosemary's Baby was such a hit, you know, basically, basically made, made Satan. Uh, and so not just the film Rosemary's Baby, but the Ira Levine book Rosemary's Baby, which it was based on, were so successful. That it, you know, it made Satan a you know a bankable product. Between that and William Peter Blatty and The Exorcist, yeah, I mean, yeah. that that movie just broke box office records, and so many people were nominated for Oscars for it. I mean, it's just that was a box office bonanza. And then you brought up The Omen earlier, which is to me the other piece of the stool, and that's where you get finally uh, Jerry Goldsmith finally getting his Oscar for a score when he had done so many scores that are just as Oscar-worthy, but thank goodness they recognize him for something. And then you've also got, so you've got those forces, and then you've got the counterculture, you know, and you've got those hippie and those alternative sort of religious spirituality movements. And, you know, in the US and the UK, not really in Australia, there was oh, a little bit in Australia, there was this big get back to the land movement with hippie culture. And, you know, there was a sort of spiritual Wiccan thing about nature and nature spirits that really pushed that forward. And then what happens is it basically goes from being a fringe interest and by the 1970s it's with the help of being continually picked with the, the help of these movies and books but also being amplified by the media, it becomes mainstream as there is in when Koss's Fear No Evil. It's quite normal for a bunch of middle-class hipsters to sit around at a dinner party and talk about, oh, does Satan exist? The other factor that we need to bring into this, I think, or another, the other two factors, just very briefly, you know, the breakdown of censorship which is more or less broken down completely. The strict mid-century censorship regimes that we see in Australia, Britain and America, by the late 60s, 70s, early 70s, are completely broken down. So it's, it's open slather. And also you've got big advances in makeup and special effects, which, which, which links into what we said earlier about even relatively cheap made-for-TV movies are actually able to have some quite good effects. They're actually able to be quite effective. So all, the combination of all these things and that just seeping in that strangeness in the, in the culture is, um, you know, it just explodes. Andrew, you brought up something good, which was the whole idea of Fred Mustard Stewart. Uh, one of his next projects that he did after the Mephisto Waltz was to work with William F. Nolan on the story for the Norlis tapes. And I've talked about that one before when we did a uh, podcast, a whole series of podcasts on uh, the Kolchak, because Kolchak and Norlis to me were pretty much the same 
character a little bit. I mean, this one, he's more of an investigative reporter. Oh, wait, so is Carl Kolchak, and he's looking at the paranormal. Oh, yeah, I guess he's basically the exact same character. And he it was directed by Dan Curtis, who had a foot in the Kolchak story. can't remember if Nolan had anything to do with Kolchak as well, but, I mean, it is basically, well, Kolchak was a success. We're going to try this other thing, and basically the Norlis tapes was a, a unrealized uh, TV pilot, so it became a TV movie. Well, and this was the time of television anthology horror. This stuff, I mean, it had been brewing for a while, but the 70s had just exploded in in America, in Britain. God, uh, even Australia had its own, you know, horror TV anthology horror series, that, um, The Evil Touch. I mean, it was just everywhere. You know, I mean, Rain, you must have watched this stuff as well. Yeah, you would have. Starting with Twilight Zones and every offshoot, every variation of that that I could, for sure. Night Gallery, Outer Limits, like, you know, all that stuff. And we mentioned earlier, I mentioned it a couple of times because I did my, I watched it for this podcast and it made quite an impact on me when Koss directed one of um, two films basically with an actor called, and so before he did the Mephisto Waltz in 1979, he directed a film called Fear No Evil, which is the first of two films when Cost didn't direct the second one, starring Louis Jordan, who I'm always going to associate with Kamal Khan and not the 1983 Bond film Octopussy, but I'll try and push that out of my mind. <laughs> who plays and he was in Dracula too? Who plays this most 1970s TV anthology horror character of characters, a sort of vaguely European psychiatrist, Dr. David Sorrell, who gets called on to consult in various occults. Related cases. Jordan was sort of French, so he sort of fit the suave, mysterious thing. And apparently, I read somewhere that those two, so there was Fear No Evil, then there was in 1969, then there was um, Ritual of Evil, which Wendkos didn't direct in 1970. And they were basically trying to gear that up to be an anthology horror series. But yeah, they went for Night Gallery instead. So, was Fear No Evil, was that an anthology? Well, no, so what it is, so it's Fear No Evil in 1969 and then Ritual of Evil in 1970. Wendkos does the first of those, Fear No Evil, he's directed that, and they both star the same person. They both star the same character, which is David Sorrell, the sort of the, the psychiatrist who, who, who does work on the occult. They, and they were movies, but they were trying to, so I think they were trying to shoehorn that into a regular television series, but it just didn't take off. What's well, interesting because I know Carol O'Connor is in Fear No Evil, yeah. and he's playing a character named Miles, spelt the same way that Miles Clarkson is spelled. And I know Bradford Dillman's in there as well, so yeah, some more parallels. Absolutely, and I mean, and actually, Carol O'Connor gets a mask towards the end of Fear No Evil as the key sort of person behind the satanic conspiracy, which, which involves a haunted mirror, and there's also they they manage to shoehorn Atlantis. Demonology, witchcraft, LSD, everything. There's everything in this one. It's actually quite. I actually quite enjoyed it. It's much more obviously. So this the Wencos film. It's much more obviously made for TV. They do that thing in made for TV films where they say, "Now, if only we could find out what was going to happen." Pause, and then you insert the ad break, and then you basically you come back on a different scene. Having said that, it's still quite good, and some of the effects they do with the mirror. And with the, with the so-called haunted mirror, which is not really explained, actually, in the film. And some of the other stuff is actually quite effective. A couple of serious jump scares for me. It was, it was good. 
I remember seeing another one cost film, which was uh, Brotherhood of the Bell, which was not necessarily supernatural, but it was pretty scary. And it also had the conspiracy angle. It was uh, rather than Satanist. Well, it was almost a little satanic, but it was more of like the uh, skull and crossbones type of thing. But obviously it was the, the Brotherhood of the Bell because of the title. And yeah, it was um, Glenn Ford basically trying to unmask the secret society only to realize that their grasp went way farther than he ever could have imagined. It kind of felt a little race with the devil as far as no matter who they talk to, they all end up being in the same cult. I love that film race with the devil. I tell you that is, and that's such a, another, you know, a couple of, couple of people, a couple of couples just going for a camping trip come across an occult ceremony and it all goes bad. Very uh, Satan's cheerleaders. Yeah, and that's the other thing. You made that point, Mike, about you were, we were ready for that satanic panic in the 80s. All these films, all these films, I mean, I would really challenge you to find one single film where the outcome is either not Satan winning or it being just profoundly ambivalent as to what's happening. Satan wins in virtually every single one of these. You think about that end of Rosemary's Baby. Hail Satan! I mean, and that it, Rosemary's the mother of Satan's baby from now on. I mean, it's just it's the footprint that goes throughout all of horror. You know, even after it's been defeated, there's always the scene where it's like, well, or maybe not. The eyes open, the question mark, the end question mark, all that stuff. Have you really done it? Evil never dies. Pretty full on, actually, when you think about it. You know what's what's going what's going on there. You know, like. I mean, that's the famous cut ending from uh, The Shining. You know, is Danny playing with that tennis ball just like Jack was in the Overlook Hotel? You know, yeah. he's he's the next generation of evil, which is very, yeah. I mean, God, Damien ends up, what, being president in these uh, Omen movies. I mean, he, things get pretty bad pretty fast. Which makes you wonder about Gidget. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> just so, to catch everybody else up, Paul Wenko's directed all of the Gidget movies <laughs> ahead of all of all of what we're talking about today. All of the Gidget movies. So <laughs> let's do a re-examination of Gidget. Might be something there that we haven't haven't seen before. It's been a long time since I've seen a Gidget film. They were staples on Melbourne television in the in the in the uh, you know on Saturday afternoons back in the day. But I seem to recall a lot of those were they sort of vaguely teen exploitation? Yeah. 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 They were quite controversial in their own way in terms of depictions of especially young young women and their accommodations with how sexuality is changing in the 1950s and early 1960s and juvenile delinquency and all that sort of stuff, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think they were running parallel to all the beach blanket movies and all of the beach party films. Yeah, the first Gidget film was 1959. Wow. Gidget Conscious Satan. See what happens. You give a woman agency and a surfboard. Yes, absolutely. 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 Mm-hmm. When I looked into this, and I don't, I don't want to go into films that people might not have seen, but um, I used a really um, sophisticated, uh, sharp research tool, i.e. a Twitter call out. And uh, no, to basically, and I got this huge list of occult possession films, which I'd sort of, I mean, you know, you've got The Possession of Joe Delaney in 1972 as another occult one. You've got Nothing But the Night. I don't know if you've know, if you've seen that. Uh, that was um, the only film made by Christopher Lee's production company about a policeman played by Christopher Lee who invests in investigating the, mem- the murders of elder members of a privately run orphanage in rural Scotland. And it turns out that the, um, 
I might as well spoil this film too. Turns out that the uh, the members of the orphanage are, are elderly and are transferring their bodies into sort of young the, the young the young kids in the orphanage, and then and then they're faking their own death so that they can basically. Oh, that's pretty pretty hardcore. Brotherhood of Satan, another classic occult transference film. And a film that I, I mean, and then there's, you know, heaps heaps of them, but one I really want to give a shout-out to, which was an Australian film from 1981, I don't know if you've seen it, called Alison's Birthday, which is a really weird, terrific film, rough as guts production-wise. I suppose it's an exploitation film, but it's basically great to see these classic occult satanic transference tropes get played out in, a, in an Australian context. It's about this young woman who goes back to celebrate her 19th birthday with her aunt and uncle who live in the country. And she travels back to the country to her aunt and uncle's house for the birthday party and the aunt and uncle are quite isolated and it's really clear that the aunt and uncle don't want the boyfriend there. There's this weird, creepy, overgrown Stonehenge-type structure in the bush at the bottom of their garden. The aunt and uncle are creepy and possessive. The aunt gives Alison a tonic to help calm her nerves. And there's a really creepy, incredibly old woman in a wheelchair, supposedly one of Alison's overseas relatives who've come to Australia to celebrate her 19th birthday. Oh, yes, and Alison had a pendant that the aunt gave her as a child that she never takes off. And it turns out that basically it's all this sort of um, – oh, look, I won't, I won't spoil it, but it's, it's this great 1981 Australian occult transference film, which is hard to find, but there is a – I will say there is an acceptable – a passable cut of it on YouTube. Yeah, it's here in the states. It's playing on Tubi right now. Yeah, and I'm looking at one of the posters, or it looks like this might be the um, VHS box from the UK, judging by the uh, rating on it. And uh, it's great, half naked or probably fully naked woman uh, in front of what looks like a fireplace with these two lights going on and this big goat head and then the top it says Satan's only gift is death. (laughs) (laughs) Looks pretty good. I think I might have to check this out. That looks good. It's weird, but good. Yeah, and good and good seeing this stuff get a play get a play out in Australian in the Australian context. I haven't seen too many films like Allison's birthday. Yeah, there's also the skeleton key in 2005, Angel Heart, the whole the whole child's play cycle and a film that scared the absolute crap out of me hereditary you know so yeah occult transference has a lot there's a lot a lot of these films floating around i forgot all about that there is transference in heredity i just remember the little girl in the telephone pole we didn't talk about how death is corny yet oh god that's a line what a good line early on too we don't even know how bad things are going to get for her and she's like yeah death is corny what is it? God is in the Oval Office and Satan is his vice president. <laughs> Amazing. There's a lot of good there's a lot of good lines in this for sure. All right, we're gonna take another break and play a preview for next week's show. In ancient legend, Medusa was one of the three Gorgon monsters created to do battle with the gods. Anyone looking into the eyes of Medusa was instantly turned to stone. I have a gift for disaster. You seem to have survived it. I don't mean for me. I mean for others. He was found in his flat last night. Dead? Not quite, but he had been badly assaulted. But I assume he'll be all right then. He will never be all right again. 
I did not set fire to my school. I did not touch the brakes of my father's car. Therefore? Therefore, there must be something else. And was there something else? What else could there be? I made it happen. But you couldn't cause an accident miles away. I made that accident happen. If you say coincidence to me, I will drive my fist through your face. Somewhere deep within what's left of that brain, something is going on. It's grown stronger almost every hour. You know more about that brain than anyone. What is going on? I don't know. I made that school burn. The children, all of them. What am I? How can I will death? Could any of the other incidents Morla felt responsible for be called uh, disasters? Well, yes, one of them could be described that way. Were there any deaths involved? Yes. When I get behind a wheel, I have an insane urge to kill. We're all the devil's children. We find what powers the sun and we make bombs of it. We achieve power and we go mad. We always destroy. Against our reason, he believed he had the power to destroy a plane, to shatter a cathedral. He is alive. So is the belief. He said he would do it. I believe he will. I am the man with the power to create catastrophe. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at the Medusa Touch. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Andrea and Rain. So, Rain, what has been keeping you busy lately? Well, I am uh, getting ready for winter. I've got a lot of stuff coming up. I'm going to be recording with my band, Santa Labrada, uh, sometime this winter. And uh, I've got a couple of book talks and a writer's conference I'm going to be doing. Uh, so if you check me out at uh, rain.com, I'm also going to be overhauling my blog and my website. So if you want to watch that happen real time, follow me at rain.com. That's R-A-H-N-E. And Andrew, how about yourself? What have you been doing in lockdown? Look, I've been busy. I've been um, uh, writing a book, basically an academic book based on my PhD, which is a history of, Ast- of sort of Australia's largest post-war pulp publisher. So that's that'll come out next year. And I've also been doing oh bits and pieces, few few DVD commentaries, DVD booklets, and things like that. But I've got a uh, another book coming out with PM Press imminently, about a month or so. Although this is COVID's had a big impact on all the supply chain, so it's a bit, a little bit all over the place. But um, Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction, 1950 to 1985, which I've co-edited with Ian McIntyre, the third and probably final book that we're doing of that series for um, PM Press, which will be out in the US probably towards the end of October, early November. I have had it on pre-order since July 11th, 2021. Well, yes, I hope I hope it's going to work. I hope it's going to work. I think it's, it's the early the early indications are that people think it's pretty good, but always a bit nerve wracking. Is there a good place for people to keep up with you? 
In terms of social media, I'm most active on Twitter, which I'm at Pulp Curry, P-U-L-P Curry, C-U-R-R-Y. And I also have a website, which is called, let me think, oh, pulpcurry.com. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth and Satan take over the world.